Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Oh, gosh. Now, there are people who can remember when they were 18 months old. I'm always <laughs> amazed. I just don't believe that's possible. Actually, my first memories were a combination of piano lessons, which I started when I was seven. And around that time, I was initiated. I was uh, became a choir boy in uh, the Anglican Church in Scotland, which is called Episcopalian. And, uh, and therefore, music played a very, very big part in all of the services. And that's where I, I started as a, a boy treble and uh, then eventually became a tenor as my voice broke. When did the lightning bolt strike you that conducting might be something to pursue? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a lightning bolt, Sarah. What I would say is that witnessing my father at the helm of the choir and his ability to make out of this very, let's say, the heterogeneity or just the, the, the fact there were so many different voices, making something homogenous, bringing it, uh, my father's favorite word was always unanimity a unanimous tone. His bar was very high. So it, it was experiencing my father and the the art of conducting, the art of leadership, the authority needed, but the art of persuasion, the respect shown. Over those years, I began to think, wow, that's something I would love to be able to do and see if I can do that as well as my father. And of course, he was he was steeped in the music of the church, but I was now, by now, uh, at school, far more interested in orchestral music. I didn't really have it, have what it took to become a concert pianist. I'm a good pianist, but I, I just, for me, the the thought of uh, locking myself away for hours on end just by myself was extremely antisocial. I liked making music with colleagues, and that's where my first opportunities at school. I was 14. I was given a chance to lead some of my school friends in a charity concert. Gilbert and Sullivan and some Hyde and just and uh, I had this telescopic pen that I used as a baton and out of that actually an ensemble began which I was then the conductor of so yes there was no lightning moment but I, I do remember when this group of friends became this so-called Caritas ensemble and we after perhaps five or six years uh, it grew to about 75 players from variety of schools. I was at a boys' school. There was no such thing as co-ed in those days. And then we brought in a girls' school, and therefore, and then I started doing Dvorak and Beethoven and some Wagner. And uh, yeah, that that's when it was very clear to me, and I feel in that respect I'm very lucky. I knew very early on what I really wanted to do. The question then becomes, how do you do it? How do you get to the professional level? Should I ask you how you got to the professional level? <laughs> Funny you should ask that. <laughs> There's a great deal of fantastic amateur music uh, in Great Britain, great youth orchestras, but it really is quite quite challenging to make it to move from the amateur to the professional. I had a, a very, I would say, academic uh, training at university in Edinburgh. While I was doing the academia, I'd taken up the French horn and... I had come to love opera through a visit to Scottish opera. I saw my first installment of The Ring Cycle. That was a lightning bolt. That really hit me between the eyes and changed me forever. Wagner. And 
I realized opera was uh, something I wanted to to know more about, specifically the music of Richard Wagner, which led then to the music of Anton Bruckner, the music of Gustav Mahler, etc., etc. So I went from Edinburgh to Cambridge and uh, did a postgraduate degree there. And from there I went to London to the Opera Centre and was trained as a so-called repetiteur, which is a, a coach in an opera company. And when I was 23, I went to Germany and uh, joined one of the big opera companies there and worked my way through from piano playing to accompanying singers to coaching singers to conducting rehearsals and then eventually standing in front of the real thing, <laughs> the orchestra. That's a time-honored career path, I think, in Europe especially where there are so many full-time opera companies to, mm-hmm. be, the, to be the pianist first. Can you make it as a conductor if you're not a pianist? You can. I mean, I would say that piano is perhaps in terms of uh, being able to sit down and, and play a score, or uh, one of the skills I learned at university was score reading. In other words, seeing five or six voices, string quartet, for instance, and reading all four parts simultaneously and playing it at the piano in different clefts and this, that, and the other. So the piano is, you can you can create your own orchestra, so to speak. But there are many many fine conductors who are like clarinetists, they're oboists, um, I was speaking with Simon Rattle this morning, and uh, he's a timpanist, he's a percussionist. And I mean, he's a very good pianist too, but it's not absolutely essential, but I think it's very important to have some training in playing an instrument in which you've actually sat in an orchestra and you get a feel for what it's like to play with other colleagues, how you, how does an orchestra tune, how does it play together. And uh, But certainly, as, as a pianist, I, I enjoy, for instance... One of my other hats is, of course, in Berlin at the opera. And I enjoy, if I've worked with a a singer with the orchestra and there are certain things we want to discuss, just taking that person into a studio, just sitting down and playing, and just just the two of us, uh, which is easier than if I'm not a pianist and therefore I need somebody to play for me and all of a sudden two's company, three's a crowd. And uh, So, yeah, it's not a prerequisite, but it's, it's a big help. As a sidebar, I'd like to hear more about what's involved in score reading, because this seems to me just an impossible human activity. If you're looking at not just a string quartet, but a whole orchestra, maybe there are 20 lines on that page, mm-hmm. and they're, not, they're in different clefs. Some mm-hmm. of them are in different keys, like the clarinet A isn't the same as a violin A. How do you learn to process that all and turn it in a, into a coherent chord in your head? Study. Uh, are there I, I, exercises for this kind of thing that build step by step? Um, I I would say that those exercises that I, I thought at the time, oh my God, goodness, this is so really academic and the score reading and sitting down and having a Haydn string quartet put in front of you and then you're supposed to not only sight read it in terms of reading it, but also, as you say, a viola plays in a different clef. It, it really, it's practice. It really is practice. I wish I could say, just add water or just do this uh, or be a genius, perhaps. <laughs> Those are a lot of lines that, that you are, you can't, you can't read them simultaneously. I mean, you can with a string quartet. There are four voices. You can perhaps do it for six voices. Your eye is constantly scanning up and down, up and down. You're always a little ahead of what you're playing. But when it comes to, well, I mean, for instance, doing La Mer uh, with a very large symphony orchestra, you've just worked very hard on the score and you know what it sounds like. You can read it, you hear it. And you, your eye moves to what is at that given moment probably the most important line 
it can be the first violin that may move to a clarinet that may move move to a French horn but it's it's just always it's scanning scanning you're not reading I mean you should you're not know, sight reading no I mean you should know the piece well enough that your eye is immediately going to the place because you've, you've just you've practiced it but do you mark up your score with highlighters or colors I used to mark my scores early on, but I don't know. I I, I find that uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, Sarah. I I found that when I started marking up my scores too much, for instance, I was just conducting the opera Parsifal in, in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, and I have a score which I bought in 1983, and I went with James Levine to, to Bayreuth, to the Mecca, the Wagner Mecca, and I assisted him there, and I, I just assiduously marked every last little thing. Jimmy conducts this in two, in four. He takes time there, and this, that, and the other. And then I, uh, he changed from year to year, and then uh, I, I put in my own markings, and then another conductor uh, would be doing it, and I would be assisting them. And after a while, there were so many markings, I found that when I conducted it myself, I was conducting the markings. That is to say, I was... Uh, not really looking at the music. And therefore, it's an exercise I go through fairly regularly when I do a piece, a Gustav Mahler symphony, for instance. After two, three years, I'll order a new score and there'll be nothing in it. Once again, in order just to see the music and just, uh, and look, I, I'm only speaking for myself, but I find that if you mark things up too much, you, 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 in some ways you inhibit yourself. You're only doing what, oh, yes, this is where I speed up and this is where I go into four and this is where I go into two. This is where I wiggle my pinky. Yes, you know, this is where I have to wipe my glasses because I can't see a darn thing. So, th- yes, that's where I find that uh, I, I find I, I mark things less and less because things will occur to you quite spontaneously. Often, I'm sure tonight when I'm conducting the Debussy, there'll be a a moment where I'll have some new insight into some it's not that oh isn't that but something some connection some thematic material connection in this great masterpiece will suddenly become apparent and uh, you can only see that in the looking. Debussy's La Mer for decades now, but a couple of weeks ago you posted a picture of Debussy saying something about the genius of La Mer, and I wondered what it was that had jumped out at you just that day to inspire that. I was uh, working on La Mer for here, because I, once again, had a new score. Like I said, I'm some weeks out uh, in terms of just reminding myself of the, of the work and studying it again. And it was while I was working on it and I was doing some research into it and, and all of a sudden I saw this picture in colour and I thought it, it was just oh my goodness to have known that man and just this this revolutionary figure in such subtle ways and uh, to bring the ocean to bring the swell to bring the wind the waves the fragrance the salt all into a concert hall amazing I, I saw that picture and I took a liberty just to Debussy was almost a sailor. He thought about being a sailor. He loved being on the sea, even in a storm. Mm -hmm. Ended up composing 
if you couldn't have been a musician, God forbid, what would you have been? I would have been a pilot. Absolutely. Not too I, different from a sailor, actually. Uh, no, in that you're... Riding somewhat, the swells? Yes, I was going to say you're at the mercy <laughs> a of... A pilot? Do you fly? I do. I, I don't fly-fly, but I'd like to. Uh, I have a... I was just thinking when you asked the question about score reading. Uh, score reading, uh, in terms of having lots and lots of lines uh, in your vision, mm-hmm. it's not unlike when you're flying flying an aircraft and you have lots of dials and you know your, your speed, your altitude, your speed of ascent, speed of... De- and I, I have a simulator, a flight simulator, both in Berlin and in Jackson Hole. And I fly as much as I, I can. I love it. And I, I have a very... He was initially a colleague. He was the principal bass player of the Deutsche Oper Orchestra. He was also a pilot. and He flew flew very well-known conductors between Berlin and Salzburg and Bayreuth. Of course, he flew professionally. Anyway, I got to become very good friends with him, and uh, he is my instructor. He comes by once a week, and it's astonishing what you can with the computer graphics now. You you can really, well, you you can have equipment at home, which is what many professional pilots have worked on or continue to work on to to keep themselves up to snuff. And uh, oh yes, my my father was in the Royal Air Force. He was, I mean, he. He didn't do much flying. He was really uh, very much uh, involved in the maintenance of, he was in Rhodesia, uh, what is now Zimbabwe. He, uh, he was there during the war, Second World War. So I, I think I, I perhaps I got that in those genes, but I, oh my goodness, I don't think I'm bright enough. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, when you're talking about aerodynamics and all the things you need to know about, of course, I'm far too old for that now, but uh, whether I could have done it, I'm not sure. But I, flying for me is still utterly remarkable, utterly remarkable, not just death-defying. It, it really, it still never wears off uh, an aircraft taking off. And whenever I'm flying, which is a great deal. Often. <laughs> often. I still, of course, I go through all of this in my head now because I know the checklist and I know what's going on in the, in the cockpit. And, uh, oh, I love it. But just to be clear, you've never flown an airplane. I've co-piloted a plane because okay. uh, in, in the Tetons, a lot of people have uh, their jets or they have uh, access to smaller aircraft. And so I've gone up a number of times. Uh, and, and actually, one of the things that really was for me that lightning bolt, that moment, was when I was with up with my, my they were then young children, and I was up with... Uh, a very, very experienced pilot who had this very beautiful, smallish plane, and he flew me. I had to pick up somebody in Sun Valley, so we flew from Jackson Hole to Sun Valley and and back, and I sat in the co-pilot seat, and I got a chance to fly the plane a bit, and uh, we landed back in, in the Tetons, and he went up a week later by himself and had a stroke. A severe stroke. He managed. I mean, he was an astonishing pilot. He managed to land the plane, the aircraft, while he was flying. While he was flying, uh, he was in Vietnam, and he really was this remarkable man. But there was an ambulance waiting for him um, at Jackson Hole Airport, and uh, he's in a wheelchair. And one of the first calls his wife made was to me, to say, <gasps> "If that had happened last week, and and you'd been there with your children, and that was when I realized I have to be able to." land a plane. I have to be, it's not so much taking off, but I have to be able to land a plane. And that was the moment where I thought, okay, I'm going to study this. So I, I hope it never happens, but it's 
good on some level to know that I, I think I could land that plane now. Conductor and would-be pilot. Well, in our last minute here, I'd like to ask you about next weekend's concert you're leading with the Atlanta Symphony, mostly Beethoven, including Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Beethoven loved nature. You love nature. What do you get out of Beethoven's sixth? There's two levels at which this music has an impact on me. The one is just the feeling of, the, these are like folk tunes, a village wedding, or people thankful for the storm has moved through. You have the simplicity of so many of these themes, uh, which do evoke uh, a, a more rustic kind of life. You have, of course, the babbling brook in the second movement. That's the one level. Uh, but the other level is there's a deeply, for want of a better word, pantheistic element to this music, this love of humanity. While it's a celebration of nature, it's a celebration of being human. It's a celebration of how precious life is. And when, when you have this moment where uh, uh, the storm breaks in, on quite literally on this merry village wedding you can obviously understand it or appreciate it as a real storm and that's certainly that's a noisy movement and it's brilliant But you can also take it as, as a moment in life that you weren't reckoning with. You know, fate threw so many curved balls at uh, Ludwig van Beethoven, and yet he, he bounced back. And it's, as I say, it's this, uh, you can understand it on many different levels, a literal level, but a very spiritual level. At the end of that work, you feel a better person. You feel you've been on a, another journey.